0: The Eagle and Child, Episode 1.
1: Mere Christianity, Book 1, Preface, Part 1.
0: Hello, and welcome to The Eagle and Child, the hallowed pub of the Inklings. This is the podcast where each week, my friend Matt and I share a beer and discuss the writings of the author known to the world as Clive Staples Lewis, or C.S. Lewis, or Jack to his friends. My name is David, and today in this podcast, we're going to begin working our way through mere Christianity. And as we look through this well-known work of Christian apologetics, I'm going to be joined by my fellow C.S. Lewis enthusiast,
1: Matt. Thank you, David. I'm incredibly excited for today because we're diving into the preface, which for listeners right now, if you're thinking, ah, this is a preface, let me just jump to the first episode on chapter one. Don't. This preface is classic C.S. Lewis, packing so many insightful points into such few pages. We could talk all night. Honestly, I think there's more more points in this than any single chapter.
0: Absolutely. I think this is one of the best ways to get to know him.
1: Couldn't agree more.
0: So as we mentioned in the inaugural episode, we're not C.S. Lewis experts. We're just enthusiasts. So if you take issue with anything we say here, or actually if you take issue with anything that C.S. Lewis says please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter. Our handle is at Pints with Jack. So, before we actually go any further, let's do this properly. Cheers. Cheers. And as Matt said, in today's episode, we're going to be looking at the preface, which is actually a little longer than most of the chapters of the book. So we're actually going to split this into two episodes. And in the preface, Jack goes through a number of different topics. He first of all describes the history of the material, how... It originally started out as radio talks and were later transferred into books. He also talks about the kind of book he's writing, about what mere Christianity actually even is, how he's not going to help you choose a denomination. And he explains why he doesn't address certain issues and certain topics. And it'll probably be about this point that we end the episode. But when we come back in the next episode, we'll look at how Jack responds to criticism of his use of the word Christian, and also about the relationship between mere Christianity and the different denominational creeds.
1: I'm excited for that last point, particularly when he talks about the relationship to denominational creeds, because that is going to be where we can talk so much about uh, the importance of understanding denominations, and he has a beautiful analogy of the different rooms in the hallway, and I think there's just such a good principle here that I'm excited to unpack.
0: Yeah, I think it really sets the tone for the book and also for our discussion, Because you're currently listening to two Catholics who love being Catholic, who would want nothing more than everybody else to be Catholic. But at the same time, we can recognize the truth that's found within other denominations. So I think Jack strikes a really good balance, and I hope we do the same in this podcast as well. So Jack kicks things off by explaining the origin of the book, how it began life as a series of talks on the radio. And he gets to the point fairly quickly that this isn't going to be a book that's going to help you decide which denomination to join. Here's what he says. The reader should be warned that I offer no help to anyone who is hesitating between two Christian denominations. You will not learn from me whether you ought to become an Anglican, a Methodist, a Presbyterian, or a Roman Catholic.
1: And I think that was really wise of him because as I mentioned in the beginning, this book was influential in bringing me back to the Christian faith. And I can tell you with complete confidence that Had someone presented me arguments, obviously coming from the Catholic perspective of all of why we believe what we believe, and if you're an Anglican or you're someone else, another denomination, same for you from that perspective, that would have turned me off. And so I think it was a great decision to do it this way. Although now I kind of selfishly wish he wrote a little bit more on some denominations, but that's only because I'm later (laughs) in the journey. So given what his goal is, I think it was the right choice. Mm. I wish I could ask him, him some thoughts on some of the other stuff.
0: He winds everything back to first principles and gives a very gentle introduction to this idea of Christianity. In fact, I'd say this is the book that I've often most recommended to atheists.
1: Yes, same here. This is that first book I always give. Mm -hmm. And then if someone's a Christian and they're actually interested in learning about Catholicism, the book that I've traditionally given to people is Scott Hahn, Rome Sweet Home. So it's Mm -hmm. always mere Christianity, Scott Hahn. (laughs) Uh,
0: My other one would actually be a book that only came out this past year, Trent Horn's Why We're Catholic. And for very similar reasons, because it goes from first principles, that why we believe in truth, why we believe in God, why we believe in Jesus, and why we believe in the Catholic Church. So he takes you through the, the full journey. I'm
1: going to have to check this out, because I've only just heard about him. I've watched a few of his YouTube videos. And I am blown away with this guy's compassion and kindness uh, and yet abilities to somehow convince you of his points.
0: And his full contact logic.
1: It's incredible. It's <laughs> incredible. So I haven't read the book, but from knowing him, at least listen to him, I'd say it's got to be a pretty impressive book.
0: Okay, when we're done, uh, let's get in my car. I've got a copy in the glove box with your name on it then. Yes! <laughs> Jack then goes on to explain why he's not going to help you choose between denominations. Because he says that a lot of the differences between denominations relate to issues of what he calls high theology or history. And he says that these should only be tackled by experts. Which is kind of breathtaking, because this is C.S. Lewis. Um... Jack,
1: if you're not an expert, who is? <laughs> <laughs> I need to stop a lot of my conversations.
0: Yeah, exactly. I, I I think I'm just too quick to speak and to pretend that I really know what I'm talking about. Damn. But he, here's what he says. He says, I should have been out of my depth in such waters, more in need of help myself than able to help others. Jack is being very humble here, but he, in book four, he opens up by saying, I'm going to start telling you things that people told me I should never talk about, <laughs> as he goes into what it means to be begotten, about the, the Trinity, about the life of God. This is what I think most people would call high theology. Mm-hmm. So
1: he tackles it eventually. Maybe it's a false humility.
0: He should repent
1: of that. I think so too.
0: <laughs> but he does make a point, which I find very challenging because he makes the point that discussing disputed points of doctrine doesn't encourage non-Christians to convert to Christianity. He actually says our division should never be discussed except in the presence of those who have already come to believe that there is one God and that Jesus Christ is his only son. And I think how many raging battles have I had on Facebook over some denominational <laughs> issue?
1: I think he's correct. I mean at the end of the day his point is correct. But I'm going to cut you some slack here a little bit, because I think these denominational issues, or the high theology calls it, uh, going beyond just the mere Christianity, are extremely important. I think he's right that they're not going to convert someone. But at the end of the day, I like to think of our journey and our relationship with God as like you're dating someone. You know, your first, you're attracted to some sort of beauty Uh, Whether if you know C.S. Lewis is for love, it could be the friendships that wait, you too. Well, if that happens with the the opposite sex and someone you're attracted to, well, that can actually turn into a relationship. But it starts with something simple, some sort of beauty. But at the end of the day, it has to build to getting to know the person on a depth. And you dig in and you learn everything about them. You want to know their history, what makes them tick. I think it's the same thing with theology. I think that's what it does. I mean, after. I fell in love with Christ and salvation and the cross and what he did in that suffering, I want to know more. I want to know how that relationship looks like and and get into that deeper issues and those those high theology issues, I guess.
0: I think that's true. And I think it also matters how you do it, whether you are engaging in these discussions for the purpose of proving how smart you are or humiliating somebody else. But I'm always challenged by this point of his, and it does make me wonder if perhaps more of my conversations should perhaps happen in a private message as opposed to on somebody else's Facebook wall.
1: That's fair. I, I actually wrestle with that, too, from time to time. I don't have the the Facebook wall as you do, but I, I find myself, it's easy in a conversation when people start counter- punching or coming up with some counterpoints to start getting defensive and your pride kicks in and no longer it's about the love of the other person, but the love of winning Yes. and being right. And their destruction. <laughs> exactly. So yes, that is, that is a, a big danger. And I see that in my life too, from time to time.
0: So rather than helping you choose which denomination to join, Jack says he's going to defend what Baxter calls mere Christianity. Now Baxter, I had to look up who this was. And there's quite a few things in this prologue that I had to go and look up on Google. Baxter is Richard Baxter. He was a 17th century Anglican minister. And he used the term mere Christianity in a book that he wrote. It was called The Saint's Everlasting Rest. Jack says that, I have thought that the best service I could do for my unbelieving neighbors was to explain and defend the belief that has been common to nearly all Christians at all times. So this is what mere Christianity is. He says he's not going to try and defend Anglicanism or even what he would says he would call my own religion. So Lewis himself was a member of the Church of England, and he says that if anybody wants to know his own beliefs, he says, to quote Uncle Toby, they are written in the common prayer book. Once again, this was something I had to look up. Uncle Toby, he was a fictional character in the book *Tristram Shandy by a chap called Lawrence Stern. And so all Lewis is saying here is that he is a member of the Church of England, and if you want to know what he believes... Go and look in the Book of Common Prayer. But in this book, he says he's going to defend mere Christianity. He says it was the part of the line that I thought I could serve best and also the part that seemed the thinnest. And to make sure that what he's defending actually is mere Christianity and not Anglicanism or his own personal beliefs, he said that he actually sent out manuscripts of Book 2 to a number of clergymen, an Anglican, a Methodist, and a Presbyterian, and a Roman Catholic, to make sure that they all agreed. And I think it was pretty much complete agreement. I think the Methodists wanted to hear a little bit more about faith, and the Roman Catholic wanted a little bit more on the atonement. But Lewis concludes saying that, as far as I can judge, the book did at least succeed in presenting an agreed, common, central, or mere Christianity. He says, certainly I met with little of the fatal odium theologicum, that's theological hatred, from convinced members of communions different from my own.
1: I was shocked to actually read that. Based on today, I don't know if that would be the case. Mm. It was that I'm reading it, I felt it was very in line with Catholic teaching. Mm-hmm. You know, emphasis and stuff again might be a little different, but you think of today and the world we're living in and a lot of these non denominationals and worse sexual ethics on things. Or even or even mainstream denominations. Yeah. And then and then I love how Lewis talked about the importance of receiving the divine life through faith baptism and communion today you would i don't think you see that a lot of places some it's like faith and that's all you need some it's like just baptism you're good i mean there's a, there's a lot of divergent out
0: yeah i think it would be very interesting to do a similar kind of experiment today so the great fear from most people when you talk about a christianity that's common to all denominations is that you water it down so much that you're not really left with anything but here's what jack says he says, it may be possible to help silencing the view that if we omit the disputed points, we are left with only a vague and bloodless HCF. The HCF turns out to be something not only positive, but pungent. Now, in that section, it's really important to know what HCF is.
1: <laughs> I was wondering the same thing when I read that. When
0: I first read it, it's was like, I had no idea. So I googled it. And HCF stands for highest common factor. It's a term from mathematics that was somehow left out of my education. The HCF is the highest number that can be divided exactly into two numbers. For example, the HCF of 8 and 12 is 4. That's the largest number that can go into both those numbers. So he's saying that the, the, the common Christianity that is common to all of these different denominations is still something positive and pungent. It's still powerful. It's still a faith to be contended with.
1: And I think it's important to point out, first of all, I think he nailed it, I mean, at least from, I can only come from the Catholic perspective. I don't know the other denominations, but there's not much in here that I could say I disagree with this. I think he nailed it from that perspective. But what I think is really important to stress here, and what I love about mere Christianity, and I think Lewis, I don't think, he says he tried to do this, is point out that the commonality between denominations is so much greater, what unites us than what separates us. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember who.
0: You're thinking of Raniero Cantalamessa. He's the preacher to the papal household. Okay. So this is the guy who every Lent and every Advent preaches to the Pope and the cardinals. And don't mean to brag, but he and I have hung out.
1: <laughs> no way.
0: I know all the cool people.
1: <laughs> uh, I'm glad I'm friends with you now.
0: You get it by proxy. Perfect. Uh, so Raniero Cantalamessa is famous for saying that which unites us is infinitely greater than that which divides us. You might have heard Nicky Gumbel, the guy who made the Alpha Course, really popular. He quotes Reniero saying this very often.
1: Um, and I, I just think that's important for listeners as we talk about this to remember. We'll, we'll talk about our Catholic experience, obviously, but at mm. the end of the day, we never want to be divisive. And we want to stress that just the beauty of the faith and in, in everything that's here in mere Christianity, just the absolute utter beauty of it.
0: Yeah, and Lewis himself, he says, if I have not directly helped the cause for a reunion, I have perhaps made it clear why we ought to be reunited.
1: He's convinced me. <laughs> now, what's interesting, though, is would you say mere Christianity is sufficient?
0: I would say sufficient for what? <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. I was thinking about that. What, what is your definition of sufficient? Because from one perspective, if someone read this book and lived this, they would be doing a very good job uh, mm. from a Christian perspective. And so why don't would like to say yes. I mean, this is incredible. I'm falling short of this in many, many, many ways.
0: Well, this is true. I mean, you can't help but read Mere Christianity and realize that you're sucking at Christianity <laughs> most of the time.
1: <laughs> Which we'll talk about later
0: what that means. You're a bad Christian. <laughs> mm-hmm. But the model that Lewis uses throughout the book is this idea that Even in every small decision, we turn our souls either a little closer towards heaven or a little more towards hell. I think mere Christianity does a great job of turning us very distinctly in the direction of heaven.
1: I think that point is incredible. That's one of the favorite my favorite parts of Lewis is that that picture that he paints, because it is very easily. And here I'll maybe dock the Catholic Church, because you can fall into the rules, and it can, it can become legalistic, although it is not meant to be, that's a misinterpretation, but it can become that way if you don't understand what the true teaching. And so you can be like, I have to do this, or I have to do this, or I have to get rid of this sin in my life, or this vice, so I can be a person that earns heaven. No, that's not the case at all. But as Lewis describes, we need to want heaven. We need to want God for eternity. And there's a lot of things in this world that keep us from wanting him. And Satan is very strategic that way. And so I really like how this book, you're exactly right, helps you want him more and know what that looks like. Turn your heart to, to fall in love with him.
0: Now, as we start wrapping up this episode, we now enter the part of the preface where Jack tells people to stop trying to guess why he doesn't mention certain things. I love this sentence. If you didn't know that this was somebody who went to university at Oxford, you do now. (laughs) I should be very glad if people would not draw fanciful inferences from my silence on certain disputed matters.
1: (laughs) Classic Lewis.
0: Although I do have to point out, a lot of people seem to think that he's English. He wasn't. He was from Northern Ireland. But he was immensely proper. So he tells us why he sometimes doesn't mention certain issues. He says sometimes that he's sitting on the fence. He says, there are questions at issue between Christians to which I do not think we've been told the answer. There are some to which I may never know the answer. If I ask them, even a better world, I might, for all I know, be answered as a far greater questioner was answered, what is that to thee? Follow thou me.
1: Oh, you just got to pause there for a second. It's easy to brush over that. But what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Does that not stab you in the heart? Mm-hmm. For me, I have to know, in, in the knowledge side of things, digging into high theology. Why? But why? But why? Maybe Jesus is just saying, just, just trust me, just follow me,
0: and and stop looking over here at these people. Yeah. Let's 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 just let's just be about you and me. Exactly. Oof. Because because here he's quoting uh, an interaction that happened between Jesus and Saint Peter when Saint Peter was asking about John. This is in John's Gospel, chapter twenty-one. Peter asks, well, what about John? What's, what's happening with him? And Jesus tells Peter, what's that to you? Wow. Follow me. <laughs> this is your job. <laughs> oh, that'll challenge you. So sometimes Jack is sitting on the fence. He says, I just don't know if we've got the answer to this particular issue. But other times he's not sitting on the fence. And he says you can't actually even tell if he thinks that, because he doesn't mention it, he thinks it's unimportant or important. He says, you cannot even conclude from my silence on disputed points, either that I think them important or that I think them unimportant, for this is itself one of the disputed points. And I can say I've I've come across this quite often, usually in the realms of apologetics. I'll be speaking about sola scriptura and about the damage that I see it's done to Christian unity. How many Christian denominations do you have? How many different theologies do you have that are mutually exclusive, that don't that aren't compatible, that say contradictory
1: things. But aren't they united on the essentials, David?
0: Well, that's usually the response that you get, which then begs the more obvious question, what are the essentials? Who gets to decide? What happens if my essentials aren't your essentials? Because we could say, well, Christianity is all about Jesus, who is God, he came, he died. Through his death, we're forgiven of our sins. So all we have to do is repent, have faith in him, and be baptized.
1: Ooh, but what about that baptism
0: issue? And also, what do you mean by repentance? You're talking mm. about some emotional issue? Sure, it's more about faith. So you see how very quickly you can say we're united on the essentials, but that's usually got more holes than Swiss cheese.
1: Now, let me ask you this. I'm going to put you on the spot. But does any of that stuff matter?
0: It matters. There's a question of how much it matters. I come back to... Lewis's image. You're either turning your soul a little close to heaven or a little close to hell. So some things matter, and some things matter an awful lot.
1: Yeah, I think that's an important point. These issues aren't just meant to be Mm. intellectual issues, theological issues. They're all about knowing God more, and as Lewis says, religion, which is the encompassing of these issues, are a statement of facts Mm. that are either true or false. Yeah. And we need to know what those are, because we need to know how we are supposed to live in relation to the way that God created the universe. And so these are very important issues. And if God created baptism to be a very important ingredient for forgiving original sin, or healing original sin, that's something we probably need to get right.
0: Mm -hmm. I think at the very least, it removes our inclination to be disinterested, to think, oh, that's not important. Yeah. Yeah. The other kind of issue he says he's not going to talk about is the issue where he has no experience. And we're going to find this throughout the book, Lewis's Humility. He says, Ever since I served as an infantryman in the First World War, I've had a great dislike of people who, themselves in ease and safety, issue exhortations to men in the front line. I have a reluctance to say much about temptations to which I myself am not exposed. No man, I suppose, is tempted to every sin. It so happens that the impulse which makes some men gamble has been left out in my makeup. And no doubt I pay for this by lacking some good impulse of which it is the excess or perversion.
1: There's a lot here. But the first thing I'd say just high level is my respect for Lewis reading this just goes to the roof. And I think this is something we all have to recognize. Because in today, how easy is it to see and to talk about other people's sin?
0: Mm-hmm. Particularly and- one that we have no idea about. Exactly.
1: And so one for me, uh, you know, getting a little more personal, but high school, college struggled with pornography. So I work uh, through the grace of God. He's helped bring healing there. And I like to work with other men through that issue, but I would never... I mean, I can have a conversation with a homosexual, but I don't struggle with same-sex attraction, so I'm probably going to talk a lot less about that because it's unfair for me to understand the circumstances they get, they went through that have brought them to the state and the struggle that they've fought. And so, I just think that this is something a lot of Christians could hear and recognize. Doesn't mean we can't say anything, but we got to be a little more. It means more perhaps
0: we should say a little less. A little less. I like that. And I can't help but zoom in on his example of gambling. I actually just came back from a trip to Vegas. I was there for four days with friends. I didn't gamble at all. It's no, not out of any great virtue. I actually quite enjoy playing poker with friends around someone's house, but gambling just doesn't really do it for me. Yeah. And so I can't really speak to that vice very
1: well. Yeah. The other point in here that he brings up that I just think is brilliant he talks about, I pay for this by lacking some good impulse, of which it is the excess or perversion. Lewis in the Great Divorce, shameless plug that you guys should read that. It's a phenomenal book, one of my favorites of his. He talks, he, he demonstrates this by showing that when our vices are killed off, you know, we surrender those to God, we pray that he removes them from us. It's a painful process but an amazing virtue can come out of it that allows us to be, almost helps us get into the kingdom of God, be a member of it, and to eventually spend eternity into heaven with him. And so he describes this lizard on the guy's shoulder that was vi- that was the vice of lust, and the guy lets the angel kill it, and it turns into a stallion that he can ride up the mountain uh, into communion with God. I just think that's a great principle to recognize.
0: Oh yeah, and Lewis is going to develop this further later. This idea that evil isn't really a thing. Evil is a twisting. It's a privation. It's seeking a good thing, but at the wrong time, in the wrong way. Yes. Occasionally I get complimented. And when people say things like, oh, you're, you're, you're very faithful to, to that ministry or you're very faithful to that thing, I can never help but think, oh, faithfulness, that's what you call it. <laughs> I just don't like being beaten by anything. I'm (laughs) kind of stubborn.
1: (laughs) That's a good point, though.
0: So I I think the dividing line between virtue and vice is often very, very small. Yes. But it speaks to your point that a vice can be killed and can actually be transformed into something wonderful and virtuous.
1: Yeah. Think of a, a continuous temptation and sin. When you overcome a habit... That, that discipline you developed, that strength, the, the ability to surrender to God, start applying that to every other aspect of your life. Oh, my goodness.
0: And things can be redirected. I mean, who is the greatest convert in Christianity but St. Paul? He begins his career in the Bible by imprisoning Christians.
1: Murdering Murdering Christians. them yeah.
0: and approving of it. And yet, by the grace of God, he's transformed into the greatest Christian ministry that the world has ever known. And he wrote most of the New Testament.
1: And so to not try to get emotional or or sappy, but if if people are struggling, and I I have it, but David has stuff, if you're struggling with things, like this is such an encouraging word to know that God can use all of that for the most beautiful thing. So just ask yourself, how is this meant to be used? What is the good in this? And how can I surrender it to God and transform it?
0: And I hear the landlord ringing the bell for last call. So... Let's finish this preface in the next episode. And in the meantime, please like, share, subscribe in iTunes and Google Play. If you want to contact us, hit us up on the website, restlesspilgrim.net. Actually, in fact, you'll be able to find the notes for each chapter of Mere Christianity that I produce for our in-person study group here in San Diego. You just got to search for Mere Christianity preface or chapter one. And as always, you can tweet us at pointswithjack.
1: Tweet us your thoughts and your questions. So let's do the sign-off further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers.